Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 267, recorded September 22nd, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 101. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code SECURITYNOW. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all your security needs from soup to nuts. And speaking of nuts, here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show, <laughs> Steve Gibson from GRC.com, the creator of SpinRight, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Hey, Steven. Hey, hey Leo. I'm a nut today, huh? You're, That's okay. <laughs> I'm a little nutty, actually. Hey, if the, if the, if the adjective fits, <laughs> wear it proudly. We have a Q&A, Q&A 101. Yes, yeah, we have uh, not too much has happened in the last week. It's been a little quiet. There have been some um, interesting developments we'll talk about. And then we've got uh, interesting feedback from our customers, questions and thoughts. And uh, and actually, we heard back from uh, IT at uh, San Luis Obispo about their... Um, um, the issue of them giving their students a oh. certificate authority. So that's that's mixed in there, too. Cal- so it, 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 Cal- It's a state college, right? California State, San Luis Obispo? Yep. C-S-U-L-S-U-S-O-L-O-O. Oh, it's Cal Poly. Oh, wow. You'd think they'd have an IT policy that would work. Well, they have a reason. A reason. Why they're doing this. And we get it explained to us. Excellent. Not for spying on their students, as we were a little concerned. <laughs> and we have questions from you, our uh, listeners. Why don't we uh, tell you what? Why don't we do the security news and updates, and then uh, we'll we'll get to our questions and uh, okay. have a Carbonite commercial. I do have also a great piece of feedback from a SpinRite user. I, it's like, okay, this has been in my pile for a while. How, how have I not gotten to this one before now? So, Hey, let me, uh, uh, before, you know, I, I, I want to ask you, I just got updated to the new um, Android 2.2 on my Droid X phone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Motorola and or Verizon shipped it out with Flash 10.1. Yes. I wonder if I should worry. Is is mobile flash a different beast than desktop flash? I mean, in terms of like being Security. less of a concern. Yeah, yeah, it's the same code base. Oh, interesting. So it's the yeah. same potential problem. Yeah, good to know. I will look for an update. There is an update. I understand. Yes, in fact, uh, one of our little blur- blurbs of news here. In fact, it's the first one. So let's go right into it. Let's head into it. That is that Flash was updated on Monday, two days ago from when we're recording this, three days ago from when the show normally airs on Thursday, um, which was ahead of its schedule. um, And that was to fix the zero-day vulnerability that we discussed last week. Both Flash and um, the 
uh, reader and acrobat have brand new, relatively speaking, zero-day vulnerabilities. So Flash is taken care of. And I did want to remind our listeners that we're sort of on PDF watch or Adobe watch at the moment, that it will not be until the week of October 4th, which is week after next, that we get Per Adobe's promise, they're actually saying the week of. So I don't even know if it's going to be Monday the 4th, but I'm sure they're working as hard on it as they can. And that'll be in advance of their normal quarterly update schedule. They'll be giving us new versions of, of Adobe Acrobat and Reader to fix a, a vulnerability that is currently being used for targeted attacks. So um, be careful with PDFs. Um, which is, I guess, always a good a, a good idea. I was going to say that it's during these periods that we know there's a problem that you need to be careful. But the fact is, you know, the nature of zero-day vulnerabilities, which seems to be what's happening with Adobe now all the time, is that you inherently don't know of a problem because it's being used before it's known of. That's, right. that's the term. So That's zero. Yeah, Microsoft had a... Big surprise also. There was a hacker conference last Friday in Buenos Aires, and it was, it was disclosed during one of the presentations that, and Microsoft has confirmed it on their website, that millions of Microsoft server-based ASP.NET websites are vulnerable Aye. to a new attack. Oh. Um, yeah. That turns out it's very clever. It's the kind of thing that's like, okay, well, this is, you know, something they could fix, but they didn't see it coming. Uh, what some clever hackers figured out was that it was possible to probe a Microsoft ASP.NET server that's running m millions of websites on the Internet now. It's possible to probe its crypto by sending it back ciphertext, which the hacker makes up. <laughs> and the the nature of the error message, which is returned... Oh, interesting. ...gives them a clue, a little bit of a clue, about the way the server reacted to its attempt to decrypt their ciphertext, which they knew was wrong, but they sent it anyway. Oh, interesting. So you get different errors depending upon different styles of failure and that and in aggregate if you do that a lot and you're smart as the hackers are i mean they're as smart as the developers are these days they end up being able to crack the crypto and then being able to suck usernames and passwords and other contents out of microsoft websites holy moly I know it's bad. It's bad. So Microsoft is scurrying around. The workaround there is a workaround, which will be which lots of server um, administrators are deploying right now since this thing first went public is to prevent different error screens. That is Microsoft's formal statement. They're they're formally declared. This is what you need to do. Is you you remove all variety of error and always return the same error, which, of course, means that the bad guys are no longer able to de 
to deduce things about the crypto on the server by looking at changes in errors. It's what always kind of, the same error. What kind of things could they deduce? Well, I, I mean, mean from, what, I, from what I've read is that it is possible to get usernames and passwords really? from, from servers. Wow. So that's not good. And, and it's a... It's a problem Microsoft's working to fix. The only the only solution they have at the moment is do n never return different errors. Force your server to always return the same error. And that way, even though technically the problem's still there, there's no information that's leaking back to the right, bad guys. Right. Wow. So it's like, woo, yeah. Wow. Um, Intel has confirmed the validity of the uh, HDCP master key which leaked out on the internet, which we talked about last right, week. Right. Um, and so what this means is this is not actual Blu-ray decryption, but this is the this is the, the HDCP is the sort of in-flight decryption. So for example, satellites use it. And it's used for for like from it's used as the way the data moves through a a digital system such that you want not to have the data in the clear at any point. So HDCP is sort of is like the after the data is decrypted from the Blu-ray disc, then it's it, you use HDCP in order to move it through your digital system until it gets all the way out to the pixels where arguably it's no longer digital. So um, you know it's you know intel's huffing and puffing and saying that they'll they'll pursue anyone who develops anything they're saying well you can't use software because software wouldn't have the performance that this needs you have to do you know, it would require custom hardware well custom hardware these days is a is an, is an fpga a field right. programmable gate array which there's no question that there's 20 people different people all over the place working on that right now just to do it as, as a lark just because now they can not that they're going to commercialize it although i'm sure we'll see some commercialization of it you know in the in the black hat um sector but why intel you know, why would they sue oh it, it well it's their intellectual property that's been breached so 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 they developed it a a um a subsidiary of Intel's developed it, has the licenses for it, licenses this to anyone who wants to use this HDCP protocol. And so it, it would be Intel that's saying, hey, this is our technology. We're going to go after anybody who exposes it. Right. And, and I'm sure it's, you know, it, I mean, the DMCA will just stomp them out of existence if, if they can find them. So, <laughs> you know, once again. <laughs> And I'm sure you heard that Twitter had a major little goof that that this was interesting. I, I couldn't wait to hear from you on this one. Really interesting. Um, it turns out that that a the, apparently a a developer was using it to color, and I think it was a female. So I would say color her tweets on Twitter. What she realized was. You could put a little JavaScript in a tweet, and Twitter surprisingly would not filter it. Okay, okay. <laughs> I know. So I'm tweeting. I get 140 characters. I can put JavaScript in the text of my tweet. Not only would they not filter it, but the browser would act on it. 
Yes, yes. I thought the browser had to see, you know, bracket script bracket or something to act on JavaScript. Yep. Turns out that the browsers are more permissive. What happened was that little hack was picked up by a 17-year-old Australian kid uh, who's a few weeks short of graduating from high school named uh, Pierce Delphin. Um, and he innocently did a uh, he used the the javascript term on mouseover in order to create a pop up <laughs> when anyone moused over the tweet that he had Unbelievable. and he thought eh, that's, cool. that's cool so he that's so he cool. tweeted it well it went out to you know everybody who's following him and as tweets will this thing spread like wildfire well unfortunately it took no time at all. I think there was, it was, I read at one point that this was, the, the, the vulnerability had a life of about five hours. But even in that window of time, bad guys figured out how they could reroute people to porn sites and create worms with this. Oh, they jumped so, on it. They jumped exactly, on it, yeah. And it just went wild. Now, what's interesting, if you, I don't know if this is still the case, but uh, yesterday, if you do a search for on mouseover, uh, on Twitter, you'll see a ton of tweets that are still there that have that content. Of course, they don't work anymore. I guess they escaped it out or something. But right, and Pierce you can see said, what the code was. Uh, Pierce said, "I did it merely to see if it could be done. That that JavaScript really could be executed within a tweet, which you know surprised him as much as it would surprise anybody. Oh yeah, just nutty. Just now, so, you if know, you if you were using no script, if you were a good security now listener, you would be all right. If in fact, if you use a third-party Twitter client, most of them were smart enough to escape out JavaScript. <laughs> True, although someone said that TweetDeck was not. Really? Yeah. yeah, so it wasn't the case that any or all third-party clients were safe because they were probably using um, they were prob probably using for whatever reason um, the IE control in their client in order to render these things. Right. Right. And that would make them vulnerable to it. Um, wow. And, of course, anybody using the, the browser interface would have been. And then in other very good security news, and I know you've heard this, uh, Google has decided to start offering two-factor authentication. It's so cool. Yes. <laughs> um, so for their, for their premium education and government apps now, and then the standard edition stuff coming soon... You, you will be able to turn on um, cell phone loop one-time password authentication so that in order to sign into, for example, Gmail, uh, you'll have to, at the time you sign in, Google will say, hold on a second, send us back the code we have just sent to your cell phone. And so... You know, so you have to be in physical possession of your cell phone to receive that code and then enter it back into the 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 form, which is waiting for it, and then you log in. And you know, they've the there's been some criticism of this, saying, "Well, but you know, how much security does that really provide? What if I got your cell phone?" It's like, yeah, hold on a minute. You know, most of these breaches happen across the other side of the globe somewhere offline you know they're attacking usernames and passwords so so yes i would remind people we do not want to make perfect the enemy of the much 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 better this is much 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 better this oh, is yeah. a 
a great thing. And it's free. They're, they're doing it. And, you know, positive commentary that I've seen has have, have mentioned that, you know, here's Google doing, you know, free email login with a second fact with useful second factor authentication that is much more robust than most banks offer right now right you know for for their for their financial traction log or financial transaction login so anyway props to google this is you know this is a nice step forward this will give the concept um some good exposure and begin to get users used to thinking like hey um i can see how this is secure somebody has to have my phone me in order, in order to log in to something, why isn't my bank doing that? Yeah, no, isn't it why great? don't? Yep. Yeah, it really is. I immediately put the software on my uh, Android phone that will generate the code, but unfortunately, I have it hasn't been turned on on our Google Apps yet. But I hope so ah. soon. Yeah. Cool. And you know, I just wanted to make a comment about IE nine. Um, okay. I'm not ready to talk about it yet because it's still you know pre-release and early beta. Um, but I've been looking at it, and I've been reading about it, and there's a tendency that we have to, to, uh, of of inertia, of not recognizing when something that was originally really bad has gotten much better, and it really is the case that Internet Explorer, much as we had to move away from it because it was such a disaster for so long. And, and deserved the reputation that it had. For the last couple major versions, they really, Microsoft really has been making it better. And, and IE9 is another substantial step forward just in terms of, of negotiating with its users for, for offering much better security. You know, I'm, I'm, on Firefox, I love the ecosystem that Firefox has with that with the add-ons and the controls I have. I don't think that IE will ever be there because Firefox is fundamentally more, you know, knobs and switches and things that you control for for tuning your experience just the way you want to. It really isn't IE's marketplace. IE is is you know, the browser that's just there in Windows and and works. But I just did want to mention that it is it is substantially less awful from a security standpoint. <laughs> Faint praise. <laughs> than, it, than it used to be. But it needs to be said. It sucks less. It, it sucks a lot less, yes. It needs to be said. And um I didn't know this really wasn't an update or or security uh news but it's certainly errata and that is that firefox went just recently from from 3.6.9 to 3.6.10 not to fix any security flaws but because they were crashing on startup on some systems so we got 3.6.9 on september 7th and and they spent the weekend figuring out what it was that they broke and then they gave us 3.6.10 to fix what they broke so that's good and <laughs> yes, then lastly so. <laughs> and lastly everybody is all going crazy over this thing called ever cookie um the ever cookie i'm getting it in through twitter this I, there was a ton of stuff in the mailbag about it so i haven't had a chance yet to look at it because it did the news just broke 
Uh, it's a researcher who has been experimenting with making, like, as the name sounds, the most absolutely super trackable, you can't shake this thing off no matter how hard you try cookie ever imagined. The ever uh, cookie. The ever cookie. So, and, and, and from what I've seen, he's been very clever with the stuff he's done. So uh, I don't think it warrants a whole... Uh, a whole podcast episode, but because we, we have a, we have a strong a strong underpinning now of understanding about the, the the fundamental nature of this kind of thing. But I'll probably spend a little bit of time, maybe next week, talking about the specific things this guy has done in order to, I mean, just really drill down. Of course, it's all JavaScript based, but to really drill down into someone's PC and hook into it, you know, hook onto it in a way. That identifies you, unfortunately, pretty much no matter what you try. Wow! wow. So, I'd love to see. I'd love to see the uh, technologies. I guess. Yeah. He, I guess. He, is it? Uh, it's. It's all JavaScript. Yeah. It's you. You need server JavaScript. side. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's well. It's client side. So it's JavaScript running on the client, which just does everything. Somebody who's been scratching their head and thinking, okay, what else can I get a hold of? And uh, I mean, bizarre things like like specific colors in PNGs that are loaded to your machine or, or something. I mean, you know, interesting sort of hacks. So, you know, uh, we'll we'll talk about. It. Just, I just I wanted to let everyone know that I'm aware of it. So, um, uh, to save your breath in tweeting and and sending email, I know about it, and we'll be talking about it in some detail. Excellent. And uh, I had a great piece of uh, email from a Bill Morton, who, uh, where's the subject here? The subject is, a, oh, a legendary Spinrite story. <laughs> he said, Steve et al., I first heard of Spinrite through the Security Now and Twit podcasts, so right here, and decided to have my workplace get a copy based upon the user's rave reviews about six months ago. Since then, I've run Spinrit on just about every drive I've come into contact with and have been so blown away with its ability to recover drives, I felt obligated to submit my own review. Upon first getting Spinrite, I promptly went to my box of dead drives that I had acquired and fired it up. Amazingly, it was able to revive all but one of the most seriously damaged drives in my collection, which in that case had the click of death, meaning it was, you know, offline, couldn't even, you know, be a drive. He said, next I ran Spinrite on all my hard drives and promptly found two brand new hard drives that had serious problems. I immediately backed up all my data and Seagate replaced the drives, no questions asked. Wow. But all of that was nothing compared to what I tried next. A laptop was brought to me that had serious disk errors, which left it both unable to boot and completely inaccessible to recover any data using another computer. As always, the data in question contained years of documents, photos, and music that had not been backed up and were irreplaceable. I set up a new drive and told... Yeah, he says, I set up a new drive... 
oh, I, he set up a new drive with that user. So he got him, like, you know, gave the guy a new, a new blank right. drive, set right. up a new drive, and told the user that I would do everything possible to recover the data, but not to get his hopes up. Enter Spinrite. Right away, Spinrite began chewing away at the drive with the Dynastat recovery, trying to recover data from bad sectors on the hard drive. I could tell that this drive had serious problems compared to any other drive I had run. But I decided I would let Spinrite either repair the drive or witness the drive self-destruct. Most drives I run Spinrite on take several hours if they have no problems and up to a day or two if they've got lots of bad sectors. This drive was at about 2% after 24 hours and thousands of errors corrected. But curiosity as to whether the drive would catastrophically fail or the seemingly unlikely event that Spinrite would finish kept it running. I checked on the program daily, and after running for a week straight, it was at 6%. From this point on, when I checked on the computer, I expected to see a pile of dust where the drive had once resided. (laughs) But strangely, Spinrite continued to make tiny amounts of progress. So I kept letting it run. To make a long story short, I think we're past that point here. Anyway, to make a long story short, you could imagine that I was not surprised to find that one day Spinrite was no longer running. But I was shocked to see that the operations had finished. I anxiously checked the stats and found that Spinrite had run for 595 hours, (laughs) 40 minutes and 12 seconds, (laughs) just shy of 25 straight days. Wow. After taking pictures of the Spinrite screen for proof of this legendary runtime, I plugged the drive into my computer and was delighted to see that every single file was accessible. I promptly backed up the entire drive and made the user's day when I called to let him know that despite losing all hope many weeks ago, I now had a full and complete backup of all his data. And that's a great feeling. That's amazing. Spinrite saves the day again. And then he says, you can see the photos of the recovery here. And then there's a link to smugmug.com with a a gallery link. That's great. great. That is not a record by any means. A no, there have been pay- people who have let it go for months just yeah. out of curiosity. Yeah. That's amazing that it was able to get. So what it's doing, and just for those, I mean, I think most people know, but what it's doing is it keeps trying to read that sector, and it doesn't time out. <laughs> it just um, keeps trying. It, yeah, it will. It, it does a lot. It's moving the heads around. It's It's able, actually, to recover data which is unrecoverable. I mean, it the, the, How would it the do drive... That? The dr- well, there's main- there's ways of reading the data in a raw format, uh. which which takes it as it is, and then Spinrite's able to essentially apply its own algorithms, which is what the Dynastat data recovery technology does, taking a large database of of up to two thousand er- erroneous reads, and then piece the data back together again. So there's a lot that it's doing, and, you know, as user after user finds, it actually does recover data. I just wish people would use it before their drives got into condition. I mean, I, I, yeah, sure, I wish, because then they'd buy it. But, you know, I mean, it, it, really, it really can prevent 
drives from getting into this kind of condition. And that's, you know, we, we hear about these data recovery stories, but it really is fantastic preventative maintenance. I mean, I run it on my systems all the time. Just, I mean, and so does Greg. And, you know, he and I know more about Spinner than anybody else on the planet. And we use it to keep these drive, these problems from ever happening. So, and I do get email from people say, hey, I bought a copy of Spinner to support you. Thanks so much. I've never had a drive problem because I use it all the time. Right. right. So it's like, it will okay. map out those, uh, those bad or marginal sectors so you don't have the problem down the well, road. What it, well, yes. What it does is it shows the drive that there's a problem that the drive wouldn't otherwise find right. until it was too late. So it shows that there's a problem before, while the data is still definitely re- recoverable and correctable, but that scares the drive into <laughs> no, literally, it's like oh crap! Look how much that? you know, look how much recovery I had to do. We got to you know swap in a spare sector, which is what Spinrite causes the drive to do. So it's funny because people say, "Yeah, I ran Spinrite, nothing happened." It's like no, unfortunately, this is all transparent. Right. So. You can't see that it happened, right. but but the proof is in the pudding that drives don't fail if you run spin right on them. So anyway, that's good. Okay. Actually, good to say that because I think uh, I didn't really understand that fully. So that's good. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a break. Come back. We've got uh, nine or ten questions. Ten good ones. And in fact, we have at the end a tip of the week: <laughs> Adobe Flash installation. Flash tip of the week. installation tip of the week. Ooh, yep. I like that. Before we go though uh, into that, I think we should talk a little bit about Carbonite. Uh, dot com. The new uh, 4.0 version is out for Windows, and man, it is spectacular. I got a tweet. Let me see if I can find this from Dr. Mom, who is a Carbonite user. She says, installed Carbonite 4 this week, light, tight, and minimal stress on CPU. It maxes out at 2%, and it only took her four days for the first 30 gig backup. Now, that's going to be dependent on your bandwidth. Thanks for the suggestion. You're welcome, Dr. Mom. And I should tell you, everybody, if you uh, if you if you are backing up, but you're not backing up off site, you're really missing a very critical part of your uh, backup strategy. Peter Krogh, my friend and the photographer who wrote uh, this great website, for, uh, Library of Congress funded it. It was uh, with the Association of Professional Photographers. It's dpbestflow.org. He talks about three, two, one backup, three copies, your original plus two backups. Two different media, so a hard drive uh, and a DVD, two different media, just in case, you know, the media changes or whatever. And But most importantly, one of those should be off-site. So if you're backing up locally on an external hard drive, that's great. But it doesn't account for total disaster, a fire, a flood, somebody stealing everything. you got to have an off-site backup. And that off-site backup, let me tell you, Carbonite makes it easy. It's automatic, happens in the background, Mac or PC. You know exactly how much it's going to cost because it's 55 bucks a year, actually a little less than that, for unlimited backup, all the data, all your personal data on your internal drive. So 30 gigs for Dr. Mom, 40, 50, whatever, terabyte, 55 bucks a year. It's a great deal. Now, here's the other side of it. You can get it back anytime from any computer. I think that's really important on a backup. I really hate backup strategies that require you to reinstall Windows, reinstall the backup software, and then you can restore the data. You can go to any you go to the library, you can use your iPhone, there's a free iPhone app or your BlackBerry, there's a free BlackBerry app and get your data, check it. it I think that's very important. Try it free right now. 2 weeks free if you use the uh, offer code security now. Uses SSL, so you can uh, you'll be backing up whenever you're online, even at, at an open hotspot. 
SSL protects you. And if you want more protection, AES-256 encryption as well. No credit card required for the free trial. Go to Carbonite.com, offer code security now. And if you like it, and I want you to try it first. I really do want you to try it first. But if you decide you want to buy it, use the uh, offer code security now. You'll get two months free. Carbonite. you got to back it up to get it back. So do it right with Carbonite. Are you ready, Mr. Gibson? Four Absolutely. questions. Here we go. Question number one. Let me scroll back to the top. Vincent Ragosta, Pittsburgh, PA, has a follow-up question about strict transport security, STS. After listening to the podcast on STS, I was wondering if this mechanism will prevent an SSL strip attack from being successful. Thanks and keep up the great work. What's an SSL strip attack? SSL strip is something we talked about after one of the Black Hat conferences a couple years ago. Moxie, our old friend Moxie Marlin Spike. Um, he, I love his he, name. He demonstrated, he, he demonstrated a man-in-the-middle attack, the kind of thing that could be effective at a Starbucks or anywhere like that, that where you've got unencrypted Wi-Fi, where you, you are a malicious hacker who splices himself into someone's internet connection, which is unfortunately trivial to do and there are now automated tools that allow this you through arp spoofing where you just set up a a computer in a in an unencrypted hotspot and you route people's traffic through you what happens is you if you see them making a query with https on the fly you remove the s and send it on and if the if you see when when there's stuff coming back in the other direction, you look at the at the page that they're about to receive, and you take the S's out of all the HTTPSs so that they get a page with no security. Most users will assume that, for example, when they put in their username and password, that the site is taking responsibility for switching them into HTTPS. But that's done with text on the page on the button that you press to submit the form. That's all there is, is just HTTPS, it says. So if Moxie or somebody who's a man in the middle removes the S as it's coming back to your browser, then your browser will submit the form unsecured, which allows everything that you submit to be captured by the bad guy. So that's an SSL strip attack, and it's not good. So the answer to Vincent's question is, yes, strict transport security, which forces your browser to use SSL, will not be fooled. That is, if if your browser has the STS token from, for example, an eBay or a PayPal saying, only connect to me securely, the browser itself takes responsibility for adding the S. So even if Moxie there was removing them on their way to you, your browser would say, wait a minute, this is eBay.com. I've got an STS token, so I'm going to just ignore the fact that there's no S's on the HTTPs and make an SSL connection. So, I mean, that's another really nice thing about strict transport security. And it's, it's a, you know, a, another reason that we're hoping lots of people adopt it makes just total sense and really does solve a lot of these problems. Question two. 
I have another one for you, Mr. Gibson. Gary Rakar in Victoria, B.C. wonders about, I don't know what this is. Maybe you do. Trusteer Rapport. Am I saying that right? Yes. Trusteer Rapport. Steve, I'm an IT professional. I have a client who recently asked me, what do I know about Trusteer Rapport? Which sounds like, Mar- uh, what's his name? Moxie Marlin Spike. Hi, I'm Trusteer Rapport. I have not given a reply yet, however, and it looks like an additional product you install to block a keylogger when going to a protected site, mostly banks. When looking online, I found a site in England that was producing movies showing successfully blocking keystroke loggers. I went to some sites that had videos of keyloggers getting through the protection. However, those videos have been taken down. It seems any dissent about this product is not taken well by the company. I could be wrong on this. I guess my question is, don't you have to log keystrokes to block them? And what are they doing with this data? Does it work if a keylogger is already infecting the computer? Thanks for the show and the work. Trustier rapport. Yeah, I've I've run across it a number of times and we've I've seen or li- um listeners asking what it what it is and what I think about it. It's a commercial company, Trustier is a commercial company that has this product that they call Trustier Rapport. And an increasing number of banks, which is their main target customer, are recommending that users install this. It is it is anti um, keylogger, anti rootkit, anti malware essentially. So it's a it's a the the the, the goal is that it hooks into the Windows API and prevents things like keyloggers from from accessing your keystrokes as you log in. It also hooks in, for example, to the so-called WinINet um, libraries. That's the that's the place where Internet Explorer and and some and a few other Windows clients. Interestingly, not Firefox because they bring their own SSL libraries. But but a number of browsers that run on Windows use this library to perform their SSL, which means it's not being done inside the browser. It's being passed to the operating system. What that means is that there's a shim, there's sort of like a place where you could insert yourself to capture the data from the browser before it's encrypted which is one of the other things that some malware does. So what these guys do is they're in the business of producing a product to essentially enhance the security of Windows. Thus, banks, among other um, vendors of sensitive uh, information, are suggesting to people, hey, you might want to install this to improve the security of your online banking actions. So it's it's a good company. I, uh, it's not necessary to answer uh, one of Jerry's questions. It's not necessary to log keystrokes in order to to um, to prevent them from being intercepted. So their software is, is essentially trying to prevent malware from getting a hold in your computer. Now, as you'd expect, the malware is becoming aware of these people. And it's a cat and mouse game. So there are already some Trojans that are trustier rapport aware and remove these hooks that are blocking them from doing what they want. So it's the same old, you know, um, 
uh, spy versus spy, malware versus anti-malware battle, but one more useful tool uh, for people who think it's a good thing. All right. You give it your seal of approval. I guess if, I I, if banks are using it, you don't have much choice. Right. Well, ba- uh, banks are not. I don't think they're quite re- quite yet requiring oh, okay. it. But you can imagine that. But that, I mean, there is some rumblings about them requiring it. I can't imagine them requiring you run software on your system. That seems to me onerous. That's a little much. Yeah. yeah. John Murky, who uh, writes a healthcare security and privacy blog. You say blob, but I think you mean blog. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's a blob author. Uh, he wants to know something about OAuth terminology. If you did not hear our episode last week, Steve did a great job of uh, talking about OAuth. Steve, I couldn't listen live, so I, uh, I've just finished listening to last week's. I'm now more confused than ever, he says. From a terminology standpoint, does OAuth provide authentication, authorization, permissions, or credentials? These terms were used too interchangeably for me to understand what it is that OAuth is doing. Sounds to me like it authorizes a service to impersonate a user, but it isn't clear to me how the service does this impersonation at a later time. You want to clarify? So real quickly, I won't recap all of last week's episode because it's all there. Um, what OAuth does is it, it provides a way, a means for, for you to allow or for a user for for a user to allow a a third party service to act on their behalf with for example a twitter or uh flickr or or whatever facebook for example so normally acting on your behalf or on the user's behalf would require that they had the user's credentials which is typically of username and password. But you don't want to be handing those out. So what OAuth provides is a means for this third-party website to obtain limited credentials from that service, like Twitter or Facebook or whatever, without ever getting yours. So that's what it does. It does authorize the service to to in a limited way, impersonate the user. That is, act on the user's behalf. Do the kinds of, some of the things that the user might want to do. It allows the user to authorize that without disclosing their own credentials to that third-party service. Okay. So which is it? Authorization? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, these, the, unfortunately, the terms authentication, right. authorization, permission, and credentials, those are almost synonymous. Right. I mean, so, so you, you, uh, you, it's probably a technical, you're, you're right. providing, you're providing authorization for that third party service by, by authenticating with the, the primary service and then it provides credentials to that third-party service, which the third-party service can then use for its authentication on your behalf. Okay. So, that makes you know, sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
let's see. Going to question six. That can't be. Did I skip? Wait a minute. No, I skipped some. We, we skipped number two, actually, also. Oh, all right. Let's go back to two. Brett in <laughs> South Africa. There you go. Sorry about that. Wonders about VeriSign VIP token for iOS. Oh, that's that uh, VeriSign card thing that we talked about. Yeah. Because I'm wondering if, if you'd seen uh, VeriSign's VIP access uh, application for the iPhone, iPod Touch, and now the iPad. I have. I actually have installed it. It's free, but it's the real. Is it the real deal? Is it compatible? I'd love to hear your comments. Thanks. Yes, um, I wanted to bring it to everyone's attention. I should have you know, mentioned this. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, and, and we we've talked about the football many times. The famous Verisign football with the six digit code, which changes every minute. And some of our astute listeners back then realized that the first digit was always incrementing, which is used by by the ba- the VeriSign backend in order to sort of stay synchronized. So it's it's a timed-based solution. And they also uh, have the the, uh, the credit card thing, right? This, this Yeah, now the the credit card however was not time-based. That's because it um it needs to it uses a little battery that's built right into it. It uses that little e-ink approach. So there it's a sequential it, it's a counter which is encrypted that produces that result. Right. Um so I wanted to let our users know that there is a program that VeriSign produces called VIP Access, which, as you said, Leo, is it runs on all of the Apple iOS platforms. So the iPhone, the i, the iPod Touch, and the iPad. It is again clock based, so it's time based, much like the football is, um, and it's it's another token. It, it's another really nice. Um, uh, authentication token. Is this the much same like kind of thing Google's doing? Is Google's app calculating it independently, or is it receiving a token over the internet? Um, you do not run an app with Google, so it's sending you a. It's sending your it phone texts a you text. A token. Okay. Yes, it's sending you a text message. So it's so so Google's solution is universal for all phones, right. whereas this is only for for Apple iOS devices. But you know, we, we've we've talked, for example, about how it's it's annoying if you leave your football at home and you need to be able to authenticate remotely. Well, now you can have a full functional, fully secure VIP token in your iPhone or your iPod Touch or your iPad. Um, you're only able to have one per device. So. Um, that if you wanted to, if you had a phone and a pad, you would need separate tokens. Ah. You're not able to move the same token between devices. So it's using be- some sort of unique identifier on the device to seed or something. Yes, and they do that deliberately to prevent it from being lifted off of your device and used on someone else's. So it knows where it's where it's living, and it will not run your particular instance of it will not run anywhere else. So they did that for security. So. The only problem would be if you if the service you were using, like PayPal, for example, limited how many different tokens you could simultaneously register with it. Um, I don't know that they do that, um, or if they do, it's probably you know five or six, so it's probably plenty for you to have a couple instances on different iOS devices and still a little football or the VeriSign credit card and so forth. See, I'm I'm puzzled because. Um, there is this Google Authenticator software here. 
Okay. We'll generate verification codes that can use to be provided additional security when signing. So I think, I don't know, maybe Google's either in this two-step verification offering you text or letting you use a program running on your phone that would work similarly to the VeriSign VIP access application. Okay. So I'll, I'll look into that and find out for you. And knowing Google, it's probably JavaScript. So it, it, well, no, well, I mean, it, it's it. Who knows how they've made it secure? I would I would trust them to have have implemented it in a right. in a useful and secure way. Right. Moving along, uh, I now will go back to question five. Sorry about sorry about question two. John Fecco in Cape Coral, Florida, wonders about client side security. Steve, your discussion about OAuth last week was extremely helpful. It was also very relevant to me personally. I'm a beginning web developer. My current project will eventually evolve an iPhone and Android app, as as one must in this day and age. These apps will need to retrieve information from my database. But after listening to your discussion last week, I'm not sure how I can do that securely. Any key that I put into my app is vulnerable. We were talking about the um, the HDCP key, right, and the fact that it has to be seen in the clear at some point because it's on an app. Uh, how can I do that securely? Any key that I put in my app is vulnerable. Ultimate security isn't possible. Is there a more secure option? Maybe a key that programmatically changes, like a garage door opener? Thanks for all you do in making me want to curl up into the fetal position from time to time. I know how you feel. So that's a, that's a question. What if you are challenged with this problem of having um, the key in software? How do you solve that? Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, John didn't explain too much about what his app is doing. He says it's, you know, he understands client-side security is what he's looking for. He says these apps will need to retrieve information from my database. So it sounds like whatever the apps are doing, he would, I I don't know if he's selling access to his database um, separately from the app or maybe buying the app entitles you to access from his database but he's apparently he's got some value add which is the access to his database so he wants to protect that so that the the apps are able to access the data but for example a bad guy cannot tear into and reverse engineer the app and then gain access to his database without using the app and john assumed the fetal position um unfortunately we've and this is what we've talked about so many times this is the this is the fundamental problem with client side security this is the problem with why you can't protect you know blu-ray decryption is my favorite example because it's recent and and people have blu-ray players every player is able to decrypt a blu-ray disc so it's possible to reverse engineer it no matter how much you know the 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 copyright owners would like you not to similarly exactly as you worry john it is possible for someone to reverse engineer your app maybe even easier if it's an android app i'm not clear on that but still if your app can access your database, then your app has to be there and and can be understood by somebody to do the same thing. There just there isn't a way to protect it. The only thing you could do would be to um, to issue each app its own authentication, and if you discovered a pattern of malicious use then 
de-authenticate, de-authorize that one particular instance of the app, which had been like gotten out of control, reverse engineered, and so forth. Um, so, I mean, they're just there. There are some things that we, you know, unfortunately, that we just cannot do, and and preventing reverse engineering of of client side security is one of the things we just can't do we're able to we're able to not have this problem for example with ssl connections to web servers because we cannot have physical access to the web server the web server has its key its 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 certificate its ssl certificate which we're relying on and it's only our lack of access to it that makes that secure. The fact that we can only get to the web server through the internet while we're pulling up pages. If you, if anyone had physical access to someone's web server, they could get the key, and then then um, there would be mo- no more security. So the fact that people have physical access to the client means they can get the key, no matter what you do. Question number six. From Joe, listening somewhere in the U.S., let's another OAuth question. Let's just get them all out of the way right now. Why are people, he says, using OAuth on the desktop? Shouldn't desktop apps just work via some API of their own to their own website? Then you any use of OAuth ought to work the same way as on the web. For instance, the Seismic app wouldn't need to store OAuth tokens locally if it just communicated with Seismic.com. Then the OAuth token stored at Seismic.com isn't susceptible to the desktop vulnerabilities you mentioned in the podcast, right? What am I missing here? So he's saying, instead of, and this is that vulnerability you were talking about, instead of Seismic, the application storing the keys, the OAuth tokens, the authentication, it should verify with the website where it's safer. Right. So why not? So he's noticing that, as I was saying during last week's OAuth, and as I just mentioned when we were talking about um, the issue of client-side security, that it's fundamentally secure. What OAuth was designed to do was to protect one website's use of OAuth as it access another website. And it's because you don't have access to those servers that they're able to keep their secrets to themselves and not expose it to the to the desktop. So he's saying, okay, have Seismic, which which is vulnerable if it uses OAuth directly because it can be reverse engineered and its keys can be obtained. Have Seismic connect to its own website where now you have that website security so because you can't get to the web server and it can talk to the 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 main service provider in a safe way that doesn't work because all you've done is you've moved the problem now the bad guy all they have to do is pretend to be the seismic app talking to the seismic website so you still have the same problem that is it's true that you could not get the oauth token directly but you're you're using the seismic.com server on your behalf to do the same thing so if seismic is able to post on your behalf for example post to twitter or do twitter things on your behalf if some bad guy wanted to spam your account rather than 
obtaining the OAuth token to do so, the Seismic OAuth token, they would simply pretend to be the Seismic client contacting Seismic.com, sending things just as if they were you. So, uh, so the problem is it's not OAuth that's really vulnerable. It's, it's the client. It's the desktop. We don't have control of the desktop. We've got, we have, you know, we're downloading software all the time from hopefully trusted sources. Many of us, I mean, all of us probably ha- are running software from written by random people. Right. You know, me. You, a lot of people run software. I write. You're well, random. I'm not, sure, I'm, I, you know, <laughs> I'm random. Um, you know, I mean, but but not big corporate enterprises, right. but right. well-meaning developers who are are who we trust because they seem like good people. We look at what they do. Other people think their software is great. So I mean, there's there's we're fundamentally vulnerable in this whole experience, and there just isn't a way to change that if we want the flexibility and the power of using software from random people then right. we're taking some random chance. And that's why certif- certificates and all this stuff, you know, it's the, the web of trust, all of these ways of kind of saying, I trust you, you trust me, so it's okay to trust him kind of a thing exist. We've got to find yeah. some way of doing that. Hey, Boy, I just, and look, at the mis- look at the mistakes that well-meaning companies make, right. like Adobe. We know that Adobe doesn't want to have all these no, problems. Of course not. They do anything not to have them, but doesn't help them very much. I did a little research into the Google uh, two-factor authentication. Ah, Matt cuts blogs about it, and it is, in fact, both. They will allow you to use SMS, but they also, if you don't want to give Google your phone number, for instance, ah. uh, they, will, they have applications for Android, iPhone, and BlackBerry that do the same thing that the Verif- VeriSign application does, generate a code. Um, you can even use a voice phone call. They'll call you, and, and a, a machine will read you your authentication number if you don't have text. And they even, and you'll like this, support one-time single-use codes you can print out and put in your wallet. Nice. Just like you do. Yep. Like your perfect paper passwords. Right. Uh, and LastPass does that. So, uh, And here's the really good news. They do say that they're going to offer it not just on apps. They're rolling. I still don't have it on our apps account here at Twit. But they're going to not only roll it out on all apps, but they're going to roll it out to Gmail for everybody at some point. Like in the next few months. And I think that's fantastic. You, yes. you do not want to lose your Google account. Uh, it happened to Colleen, and it's a, it's a horrible thing. So uh, I hope everybody will turn that on. That's great. Yeah. Question 7, Dan Malone, California Polytechnic State University. Cal Poly responds to uh, our episode ooh, 265, a couple episodes back. Question 3, Stephen Leo, I'm responding to Brandon. Brandon was a student at Cal Poly. Right. And Brandon wanted to know whether or not his college is spying on him. With this, you know, man-in-the-middle thing, certificate. He says, I work for the Central Information Technology Services ITS organization for Cal Poly, California Polytechnic State University at San Luis Obispo. And I've been listening and or viewing since the tech TV days. Hello there, Dan. Good to have you. I, I was surprised when I heard about the Cal Poly requirement to install a custom certificate. After I searched around a little, I found the reference to installing a root CA certificate on our campus residential network website resnet as you surmise the root ca certificate route was a benign choice in this case both for cost savings and technical reasons in the resnet network the residential network cisco clean access cca is used for among other things authenticating network access since credentials are sent to the cca appliances they need to be protected with ssl this is where the cost was an issue because there are a lot of cca appliances We've got 6,000 students. 
living in on-campus housing, each requiring its own certificate, each of these CCA devices. The technical issue has to do with the certificate format required by the CCA appliance and the difficulty of converting the format of previously purchased SSL certificates. So even though this cannot meet your trust no one TNO model, I can say that the root certificate is used only for creating SSL certificates for the CCA appliances and a few ResNet support websites. So this, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. That's like the, what we were talking about with routers here who, that have their, you know, you create a, a self-signed certificate for the router, and then you, know, then you have SSL to the router, that kind of thing. Cal Poly is using other technology for bandwidth shaping. More details uh, are online at resnet.calpoly.edu slash networksecinfo.html. These methods do not include decryption of SSL traffic. We do understand the concerns with installing the root CA certificate from a user perspective, and uh, we'll work together to resolve the issues and move away from that model. We discussed implementing the changes over the weekend. <laughs> wow, that's a quick response. However, the timing was not good. 6,000-plus students were moving in. School was beginning, so we agreed instead to implement the changes during the fall term. On the other hand, timing was good since now the ResNet staff know of the issue and our plan to address it and can now answer questions from our many tech-savvy students and parents who may be listening to security now. We probably brewed a little tempest in that teapot. We'll be meeting this week to go over options that will provide significant cost savings. Cal Poly and the California State University System are members of the Internet 2 Alliance. That's Internet the number 2.edu and the In Common Federation, incommonfederation.org. The In Common Federation now offers members unlimited server and personal certificates for a flat rate. Wow, that's a great deal. Cost of purchasing SSL certificates is no longer an issue thanks to that. Uh, to address the technical issues, we'll work with our central network administration group to see how they resolve the issues with the CCA appliances they use for our wireless network. We're doing a lot of great work with identity management in the In Common Federation Perhaps the topic of a future security now? I'd be more than willing to discuss these further with you. Thanks for the show. Dan Malone, Lead Identity Management Architect, Information Technology Services, Cal Poly. Can you imagine the complexity of what they do? Uh, well, and so there's a way to simplify this. That is, imagine, imagine if they had a thousand web servers. Uh, right. Now... What what a th and and each one had a different URL, which meant that each one that is each each of these web servers was in a different domain, mm -hmm. which meant that each of the web servers would need its own SSL certificate, which if you didn't install a root CA in the students' browsers. That is, if you only relied upon the CAs, the certificate authority certificates that came with the browsers, that would require that a some standard certificate authority sign these thousand certificates, which we know they charge hundreds of dollars each for with no quantity discount. So, so that's that's a way of understanding the situation that Cal Poly found itself in. It's as if they had thousands of web servers, every single one of them needing its own certificate. I mean, I bitch and moan when, you know, grc.com has to be renewed every three years because it's expensive. You know, you can imagine the situation they're in where due to the architecture of this Cisco technology, it's necessary for them to, to, 
to be able for for each of these devices to have uh, a certificate. So it just um, it, the the cool thing is they're going to work on a way to get around this requirement um, and be able to get um, authenticated certificates for these devices that aren't going to cost them an arm arm and a leg. And then this. Um, the requirement of putting their own CA into their students' browsers will go away. But that explains why they're doing what they are. It's got nothing to do with filtering their students' traffic, which is yeah. really nice to know. Yeah, yeah. he explained it well. I think it's amazing that they have a lead identity management architect yeah. in, their, in their ITS department. I mean, and, he somebody, listens to, and he listens to this podcast. I would if I were the lead entity management <laughs> architect. Number eight, Steve in State College PA really gets it about Net Nannies. Guys, during the last Q&A, you mentioned that Net Nanny installs itself as a root certificate authority. Oh, well, here we go again. This begs the question, does the software generate a different root certificate for each user of the software? It seems much more likely that they just install their own common CA cert that's bundled in with their software. But if everyone's sharing the same one, wouldn't it be possible for a malicious party to install NetNanny on their own computer, capture the certificates it delivers on their browser when they browse to a well-known site, let's say B of A, bankofamerica.com, and then reuse that generated data on phishing sites? To any user of NetNanny, there'd be no certificate trust flags raised by such a site, and anyone else going there would see a certificate signed by the NetNanny Content Watch root instead of a self-signed cert. Can he capture enough data to make that work? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly, it's a perfect example of why you absolutely really want to resist installing sort of off-brand CAs in your browser. You know, we talked about this explosion in the number of of certificate authority root certificates, which our browsers are now trundling around with, and and so the 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 model of an exploit that Steve suggests here is exactly right. If assuming that all NetNanny installations install the same root certificate, which is almost a certainty, then so some bad guy gets NetNanny and installs it on his own machine, then goes to bankofamerica.com, and what he's going to what his browser's going to receive in that transaction is a essentially a fake bankofamerica.com certificate signed by NetNanny, generated on the fly in his machine as, as he initiated that connection to the actual bankofamerica.com. But now he has a fraudulent, essentially, certificate for bankofamerica.com signed by NetNanny. So if he then sets up a, a phishing site... And for example, uses DNS spoofing to cause some, or or well, not even DNS spoofing. Any kind of man in the middle attack, for example, goes to, um, you know, gets a whole bunch of these for a, a whole bunch of of popular secure sites. Goes to a Starbucks and intercepts people's traffic. Um, he's now able to deliver fake certificates for all of these sites. Now it's true that 
most people will not have a net nanny CA certificate authority certificate, you know, root certificate in their machine. But what they would get instead of, as he mentioned, instead of a self-signed certificate, if they looked at their certificate, they'd see that it was signed by net nanny content watch and go, oh, well, I don't know what that is, but that sounds must be okay. Important. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd, they'd, they'd click okay. Wow. Um, whereas people who do have net nanny installed and you can imagine maybe a targeted attack where um if you knew who what, what who net nanny users were and sent them links in email you could then get them to go to a uh, to a fake site that would raise no flags at all because uh. their browsers carrying that net nanny root certificate would be quite happy with fraudulent certificates signed by NetNanny, generated by you know by the bad guy using the NetNanny certificate on his own machine. I thought that was pretty clever. Yeah. So, yep, that's a problem. Wow. Jeez, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> J.R. Hallman in Ohio, inspired by the classic Portable Dog Killer episodes. Dear Steve, after listening to number 248, and if you haven't heard it yet, please do listen, folks. It's not security, but it's a great story, the Portable Dog Killer episode. And with everyone talking about data encryption, I started thinking about making my own site for storing text encrypted. I know basic HTML and some PHP. I'm just starting to get a little nervous here. And how to make a complex site with a login system and uh, data storage and encryption. So following your example, I opened up Firefox and went to w3schools.com and started reading. Then opened Notepad and started writing. I have been working on the site. I'm so scared. I have been working on the site almost from the time Security Now 248 was made. I've been doing a lot of problem solving to make it secure, and I've learned so much from the work I've done. Here's the site. Should we give it out? Sure. It's really neat looking. Oh, good for him. Cryptscript.com. C-R-Y-P-T-S-R-I-S-C-R-I-P-T.com. It's not completely finished yet, but it's getting there. The server it's running on has uh, six 10K RPM SCSI drives and RAID 10 for redundancy. Oh, he's 17. Uh Uh-huh. This actually is a great story. Computers are my hobby. The first computer I had had four megs of RAM and the CPU, I think was 75 megahertz and had a 400 megabyte hard drive, was running DOS. I installed Windows 3.1. He must have been like four. <laughs> Seriously, that, yeah. that, that's like 15 years ago. Today, my main desktop now has 8 gigs of DDR3 and an AMD Phenom 2 955 running at 3.6 gigahertz and one and a half terabytes of hard drive space, and I installed Windows 7 on it. I like to keep my computers very clean and secure, so I run almost everything in VMware, unless it's something like World of Warcraft. He has a YouTube channel. YouTube.com slash V, as in victory, 3D games. V3D games. Thanks for reading and keep up the good work. So tell me, what, what, is, he, what is he doing here at CryptScripts.com? Well, he's just decided he's go- he wants to do something. And um, I just salute him as much as I could. He, um, he said, you know, he started out, he knew a little bit of HTML and a little bit of PHP, but not how to make a complex site with a login system and data storage and encryption and so forth. So this is and for his own s- s- purposes. Well, yeah, he's just sort of, he says, I want to, I mean, who knows what this will grow into? Or, you know, the the point that we made during that show is, unless you do something, nothing happens. Right. So he wrote it, and he learned all about it writing it. 
Yep. So he went to W3 schools and he started reading so and, he's, he, and he's learning about hashes and crypto. He's got a password generator there. He's got, um, you know, just all kinds of cool stuff that he's that's online and that's working at cryptscript.com. So that's what I really like about uh, this, about tech, this, you know, new digital um, era that we're in is that anybody who has an interest can find this information. It's widely available, freely available online. Yep. All the tools he's using are free. So he can go out and do it. He needs a computer. That's about it. Now, it looks like, you know, he's making, it looks like the, did you look at his video site? Yeah. He's got yeah, the, he's, the 12 Pains of Christmas <laughs> World of Warcraft theme. <laughs> he's uh, obviously a, a WoW player, and he's he's doing uh, Machinima with uh, Warcraft. That's really cute. Wow. <laughs> Good for him. YouTube.com slash V3D Games is his uh, YouTube site. Yeah, this is a kid who's going to go far, obviously. Yep. He's at, he's at 17 years old, and he's not sitting around doing nothing. He's, but, you know, he's, he's learning and stretching himself. It does, and that's what it takes. It you does raise stretch. a point that we were talking about during that episode 248 about the dog catcher. You worked in hardware. But nowadays, kids don't need to even work in hardware. I mean, all, everything he's doing is software. It's all bits. Yes. But it's still building. It's still making. It's still creating. Oh, yeah. And it's research. And it's sitting there with long hours and scratching your head and, and testing things and working on code. And, I mean, all of that grows you and, and makes you stronger in ways you just can't imagine. Yeah, neat. Really, really neat. Very. Our last question, Steve. And it is our Adobe Flash installation tip of the week. Timely, since you'll all be updating your Flash, I hope, if you haven't already <laughs> done so. Steve, I think it was on one of your recent Security Now podcasts I heard a discussion of installing Flash and how Adobe annoyingly forces the use of its own download manager. I discovered a way around this because it was it's something that's been annoying me for some time. I would have to either install the download manager or search for a direct link every time Adobe puts out an update. Hmm. Which is pretty often. Yeah. But I found an easy way around this. All it takes is going to the Adobe site using a different browser. Hmm. To update Flash for Firefox, you update, you go, you open IE and you go to the Flash page, adobe.get.adobe.com/flash. You select the browser near the top. At the next page, choose the correct operating system and continue. Select the radio button for the latest version of Flash Player for Windows. Other browsers. That's the key. You have to select other browsers. Click on the Agree and Install Now button, and an option to download the file instead of the Download Manager should pop up. The reason is, uh, otherwise, it would install it in the running browser. Exactly. So he says the opposite works for updating IE by using Firefox. You just have to select the IE version instead. Hope this is useful. Keep up the good work. And that has another advantage, which is you get to save that uh, update file for later use or use or, on multiple or, machines. Exactly. I thought this was very clever. If it sees that you're wanting to update the browser you're using, then it just does it instantly In sort of, browser, you know, kind of, yeah. with us. Exactly. But if you come to it with a different browser and say, oh, no, I don't want to update this type of browser. I want the other browser. Then you get the file. So it's like, hey, I like, that's very clear. That's what I'm going to do from now on. Awesome. Steve, we've come to the end of our great questions from our great questioners. We thank them. If you want, now we do this every other week. Yep. Do you want to, Do you know what you're going to talk about next week, or is it a surprise for us all? It's a surprise for me. 
<laughs> we'll have something great next week. And then in the following week, uh, two weeks hence, we will have more questions. You can ask questions at Steve's site. GRC.com slash feedback is the form. Uh, you also will find, once you get there, all sorts of stuff. Not only SpinRight, Steve's fantastic hard drive maintenance utility, a must-have for everybody with spinning hard drives. But you'll also find a lot of free stuff like Shields Up and his perfect paper passwords, the DNS benchmark, which is still beta, right? Yes, it's a very close to being really out in the world. Very, very close. Lots of good stuff there. G and oh, and the show, <laughs> sixteen kilobit versions, transcripts, show notes, all there. GRC dot com. And if you want to watch us do this show, we do it live every Wednesday at uh, two p.m. Eastern, eleven a.m. Pacific. That's 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. So you can tune in and watch live. We have a chat room going at irc.twit.tv, which I watch during the show. And um, it's always useful to have you, uh, have you uh, on the chat room. So anybody, I think of them as my brains, my virtualized brains. That's irc.twit.tv. And we are now putting the show notes in our wiki. Actually, I think we've done this all along, but I've been a little bit more assiduous about getting them there. And uh, the wiki is wiki.twit.tv, and then you can go to Security Now show notes, and you'll see all the questions there, the show notes and so forth. Steve, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Leo. Talk to you next week. See you next week on Security Now. Security Now.